0: Humanity in healthcare is, is seeing and being seen and hearing and being heard and healing and being healed. More human
1: healthcare means I know what matters to my patients, not just what's the matter with them. And
0: more human healthcare means extending kindness, compassion and fair treatment regardless of my faith, nationality and race. Remembering that underneath it all, we're all human. More human health care means remembering everyone involved is human. As staff, it would mean the umbrella of safety and compassion is extended to me. As a patient, it would mean not to be unfavourably cared for because of who I am. More human health care means a warm and listening face, an attitude of respect,
1: and an honest and open response. Humanised healthcare for me is more than just dressing my wounds, it's holding my hand, looking into my eyes, asking how I feel, it's checking that I'm not scared, treating me like a human being.
0: human, both for people working to deliver care and for the people they care for, is the mission of the Point of Care Foundation. To do that, in our winter series we want to share some of the reality of working in healthcare from different perspectives across the NHS and social care. These voices from the Point of Care are an important counterbalance to some of the rhetoric that's flying around the press with healthcare staff represented as heroes and sometimes villains, when in reality we're all just humans who have good days and bad days and who have turned up throughout the pandemic. We think it's important to share some of the joy of work in health and care, the bits that get you up in the morning, whether they're the colleagues, the tributes or simply the patients and the impact you have on their lives. But it's also important to understand some of the realities of working in healthcare and the toll it takes, as well as the good bits that really get you up in the morning. So, I'm Bev Simons. I am the Chief Executive of the Point of Care Foundation, and I'm really pleased today to be joined by Emma Evans, who is a consultant anesthetist and a senior leader at St. George's Hospital in Tooting. Welcome, Emma. I don't know whether you want to say anything else by way of introduction. Oh.
1: Oh, that's, a, that's quite a nice opportunity, isn't it? I'm not normally someone who puts a lot of extra titles after me, but I look after theatres here. I love maternity and I've done a project with you in maternity. So I am I think that's enough. That's enough. Okay.
0: <laughs> so um, I wonder if you could start by telling me a bit about your role at St. George's and if there's such a thing as a typical day or a typical week. Okay. I think for
1: some of my week there is a typical day, but for most of the, I mean that's part of the appeal of the job that I do, most of it is a different every day. So I'm an anaesthetist who does some plastic surgery lists, but I also do maternity sessions, and then I have a management role in theatre, so I'm the care group lead for theatre. I look after the kind of clinical side of running operating theatres and thinking about which surgery goes where and I look after the theatre staff and their development. So as you can imagine, the last two years has been not typical at all and we've come through various surges and then recoveries of elective surgery which has been – has made every day feels like it's got something else to offer. In terms of challenges, but also I think also rewards as well. We've got a great team, I have to say, that has made navigating this quite quite a bit different to what it could have been.
0: And and um, what about being a senior leader? Because I imagine you're a, you're a clinical leader, but you also have a, a sort of managerial role within mm. the trust. Mm. What's it like? What's what? What are the particular pressures of being uh, uh, in that senior role? For me, it's I'm quite a, a quite. A, if you were to do my personality,
1: I'm quite a feeling person. So I, f- I, I think when things were very hard and we and we just didn't know what was coming around the corner, I always felt responsible for the people and how they felt and how much they enjoyed their job and whether they felt that they couldn't carry on and how isolated some people felt when they were redeployed. That I wanted to bring back into our family. Of theatre staff, so that I think has t- took the biggest toll on me because I just felt like I wanted to protect them all the time. Um, so it, I found that I found that the most challenging bit about being um, a senior leader is making sure that others didn't feel isolated and that they, they, they felt safe in their roles and they felt that they could do them to the best of their ability.
0: Uh, and what about senior leaders and their you know th- how they feel? What what do you do? as a group to or look
1: after you yourselves? So I mean I'm part of a really tight knit trio, I think it would be fair to say, of our anaesthetic care group lead and my clinical director. Well like the I mean I, just, I can say in retrospect it feels like we were the three musketeers. I don't think we felt at the time like that at all. But we were definitely with our head of nursing at the time and our management team gave each other strength to keep going and to be pragmatic and to not get too – take on too much in terms of personal responsibility, but to – we found a way of giving each other the strength to make decisions when we weren't sure whether they were the right things or not, but also to be able to – to modify those without criticism or – or too much challenge. I think we supported each other quite a lot because it was quite hard to pull back from our clinical roles, which is where we found the original value in our jobs, and to find ourselves at one point fully in a management role. Um, and that disconnected us a bit from our own departments, to some extent in terms of identity. Our identity was challenged, I found my own personal identity was challenged quite a lot, because I'm used to being at the coal face, So it was it in that that bit it, you needed people around you who could reassure you that it was okay, and you shared like when you were having sleepless nights, they also had had sleepless nights. So you found commonality in, in things that you were finding difficult, but then you were also able to bolster each other because some people got through those bits quicker and were able to give you a bit more support. I I I mean I felt very lucky. I mean with other people it possibly could have been the same, but I, I only have that experience to go on so. No, I, I felt like we were supported a great deal. I mean, at one point, perhaps you felt like we were a little island in anaesthetics and theatres who were taking on the brunt of redeployment of anaesthetists into intensive care. All our nursing staff were redeployed on towards. And it did feel like you were in a little cocoon on your own because, of course, then when elective surgery started again, suddenly the you know there was no release of that pressure because as soon as you got your anaesthetist and staff back, the, 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 the kind of demand on getting theatres up and running without rest or pause was there so it didn't feel like you ever got a break but that is true of lots of other specialties and I think it was through senior leaders updates that you were able to appreciate that you weren't the only people that were involved but I think when we saw our surgical colleagues we could see that they were in a really different position but that they all found other ways to help during the surge. And, and it's been nice to be able to grow surgery back again with them, I have to say.
0: And I, I know it's, I mean, it's a big priority nationally, isn't it, to make sure there are things in place to look after staff wellbeing, given everything that's happened. And especially this last year, couple of years during the pandemic. So, but how do you, you've talked a bit about the relationships with your clinical colleagues and your managerial colleagues, but how do you get to de-stress and decompress?
1: Um, I mean, I think we found it, I found it very difficult at the beginning because I think if anything it showed me how introverted I truly am. Having to be around people all day meant that I was kind of empty as I walked through the front door and I found that really hard because my family, of course, weren't part of being on the front line, were back from university. My husband was not shielding, but is high risk. So I had that dilemma about being someone right in the thick of it, coming home to someone who was ex- extremely vulnerable. But then they they didn't have the same experience of my day as me and wanted to film, you know, almost to you know, to give me something to come home to, but I needed to shut down completely. So it was quite hard to get through the first bit because i needed to have time on my own and now i had a house full of people which doesn't go well <laughs> with an introverted person who's you know quite sociable but with a certain uh, only a certain capacity for continuing to be able to do that but in some ways you know as time went on that would, that did give me the complete switch off in terms of priorities, and you know, not having to keep thinking about what was going on, that I could divert myself. But it took a bit of time to adjust to that, I have to say. Um, and then eventually, I think once my husband then went back into a, you know, went back to work, and then kids started to find the sort of pattern of being at home and then starting to do online learning and things like that. I think we all sort of found our got Our mojo's back again in terms of routine. I'm very routine-based, so I've found having everyone home with no one doing anything quite quite hard. But in terms of switch-offs, I suppose the other thing is you normally would do that with friends and family, and when you couldn't see them, or you felt very bound by by the rules at work, and therefore what you you know you felt like you definitely had a responsibility to. Not, I mean, for me, I felt personal responsibility, and I still do not to get COVID somehow. But that I I, I soon realised that I did need to also look after myself, so I did want to go for walks. I I didn't want to shut myself away when I went home. I obviously stayed totally within the rules of how many people you could see at a time, and whether you were meeting people outside, but I actively wanted to do those things because otherwise it was just, your life was just being here and not being the the bit i found hardest though to see friends if i'm completely honest was they all wanted to talk about what was going on in the hospital so it took a bit of time to you know you had to get that out of the way when you first saw them and then say let's talk about something else because otherwise you were just living the experience in your off time because you you know they did, they wouldn't have a, a clue unless you really sort of said to them this is what's really going on how hard it was but we kind of got there i mean it uh, very quickly I think people appreciated what the updates were going to be and then kind of you could then go into talking about normal stuff but it is over time obviously the conversations changed as the intensity of the situation changed but um, it's been nice to be able to reassure some friends who felt really really isolated and cautious and scared through being pragmatic and hopefully calm about it all. Um, It's alleviated some of my friends' stresses about the clinical situation and, you know, because they were just accessing all of this information through the press, whereas I was able to give them a sort of real-life update, but I think they did appreciate, I mean, they they certainly appreciated how hard it was to be here and then being part of intubation teams and things like that. So they probably just felt like they had a different perspective, could see it through a different lens, I suppose, through talking to me. But yeah, gradually they stop talking about COVID, but it's still, it's still quite a big topic of conversation, which I, I try and divert them from as quickly as possible.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because with all the, the rhetoric that's flying around, people, when they're thinking about people working in the NHS, they kind of forget they're normal people as well, don't they? They forget that they're going, you know, they've got clinically vulnerable family members mm. and kids Mm. We've just been talking about our respective sons' mm. state of their bedrooms <laughs> and everything else. You know, they're, they're, those sorts of things get forgotten about in this sort of really polarised, mm. you know, clapping in the street versus, you know, mm. it's all GP's fault for not seeing people face to face or whatever. So Yeah,
1: I found that hardest is having to be the defender of accessibility of healthcare, partly defending being able to access GPs, rules of engagement around visiting and, and giving them some real-life perspectives on why those things and how hard staff found those things, like it wasn't something that anyone wanted to do. No one wants to keep people away from relatives, it's the most heartbreaking thing I can ever imagine and I obviously then had my dilemma about having a husband with health issues at home who I didn't want to put in that position either. So. I felt very, very torn. I have to say very torn about all of it. Um, it, It was something that we could then take into the way we were structuring some of the clinical care and when we started to have issues around visitors and things in maternity, we were able to, through being leaders, able to navigate that whole thing about getting women to stay with partners. And Maternity is such a unique place with regards to the value of partners in that experience and birthrights had had a, 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 you know, a big conversation and had, uh, a, you know, put out various statements about the rights of women to have their partners with them. I mean to some extent I felt that was also valid for people who were in intensive care or were had dementia. I mean, I felt that that was relevant to a lot of different groups at the time but the, the voice that I heard loudest was within maternity because that's where I work. So we felt quite that we wanted to justify being able to look at our local processes and make them as pragmatic as possible to enable women to stay with their partners, because it was so... I didn't have experience of having to look after someone who couldn't have their partner with them, but the the stories that I had from colleagues about how hard that was for women and and for colleagues to do it, having women in tears throughout the cesarean section was just uh, heartbreaking. So. But it, it was also we wanted to make sure that people were were safe as well, but um, within a you know within reason.
0: So I mean those those are the real challenges. What are the best things about working here in this team at St George's, and the things that give you real joy in your job?
1: I I just like the variety. I like connecting with different people who have completely different backgrounds and finding a sort of humanity amongst just simple things about knowing people and saying hello and sharing those You know you share great experiences, but you also share traumatic experiences and I've always found a massive camaraderie and in the environment that I've worked in because of the variety of people that I work with I think it keeps you incredibly grounded I mean I don't I'm not someone who wears my doctor badge as a badge of honour in my normal work life it just happens to be something that I do but I love the um, I like the idea that you can uh, I mean that's partly why I work in operating theatres and why I'm a care group lead for theatres because I love the teams that I work with and I want to advocate for them and make sure that they have the same opportunities that I know that I am privileged enough to have as a medic and as a leader. You know, I acknowledge in myself that I grow and as a person by having autonomy and a voice and I want to make sure that other people have that. So when I see that happening through my involvement or my support and giving them that kind of extra bit of oomph to push something through or to do something that makes a difference and to give them great feedback, that makes me happy and that's, um, it, it just is a big sort of feedback loop for me. I like the idea that, um, that I work with a group of people who might otherwise not have the same representation and are treated as, you know, I think it's very easy for us to see people as rotor slots and that's not who people are. They have, I mean, the people's backgrounds, the challenges of COVID for a lot of our nursing staff were having families in countries who didn't have access to healthcare, to decent healthcare, and I cannot even imagine what that's like. So if i just always wanted to make sure that we were able to see through slots, shifts, and see the actual people that were there and And we had a lot of wellbeing support actually, we got a great advocate in our department, one of our anaesthetists who was able to open up quite a lot of conversations with the staff support team, and then we were able to roll some of those out to our own staff groups who I think found it quite helpful, particularly our redeployed staff. And we kept all of that very confidential, that people were able to go and just use it as a complete um, sort of safe space. But I think it was nice that they were included. That we we didn't want people to fall in a heap and then access staff support. They were, it was supposed to be about making sure you're okay whilst you're okay, not just disaster management. So it's nice that we've actually got some of those, I suppose, some of those relationships going now. With you know, you don't have to be really in trouble or depressed or about to leave your job. So I mean, I'm hoping that was an effective way of supporting people.
0: You, you, it's interesting. Earlier on in the conversation, you talked about the family. The, mm-hmm. You know, the um, your work family. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, when we worked together, it was quite evident that <laughs> it is a work family, isn't it? The um, yeah. the, the theatre staff and the anaesthetics team very much mm-hmm. felt like a work family, and that didn't. That's not true everywhere. Mm.
1: I mean, I feel lucky that that's. But that's because I, I don't think that is the same. I don't know that everyone in their job as a clinician feels necessarily like that but I think that you do rely on that, I mean you spend a lot of time with people, you spend a lot of time out of hours when you're at your most tired and the understanding that you have between you about how, how, you know, to have someone feel very supported and feel safe and confident in your involvement in clinical work. And then in non-clinical work, as a, you know, I mean, it's trust, essentially, is what people describe. I really like it. I mean, I like that whole, um, my daughter ever comes to this hospital with me, she said, you just seem to know everyone, because you say hello to everyone. And I said, well, for me, that's about the day, that's that's something that makes me happy, to have connections with people. Because when you aren't, like in times when I, I wasn't feeling great or I have days where I'm not 100% of my energy, those are the people that reach out to me to make sure I'm okay. In small ways, they can tell by looking at me that I'm not the same and they'll have conversations and just give me that little bit of support. So I'm not relying on just one group of people to do it for me. I have a whole family of people who will know or if I'm not quite myself or if I was ever short with someone, that we can be honest enough with each other to say that you know to take it further and ask what you know what's going on and feel supported so I like to think that it's it's not a one-way street in terms of who can help who like everyone else helps me
0: much more than they probably realise. I mean I don't want to dwell on the difficult things particularly given your reflections on the fact that your your friends are often or or certainly at the outset were wanting to talk about um, the situation the COVID situation a lot. So it's not necessarily with that aspect, but what, what are the things that work that trouble you the most? I suppose I still find the,
1: the differential in opportunity, I, I, I still find hard, and I, you know, uh, and that is, that's obvious in a lot of aspects of my work because we are so short-staffed, we're in a double bind in terms of being able to develop people but also be operational. And I do think that, as a medic, I feel that my uh, own development time is a lot more protected. You know, I have carved out a career, I suppose, for myself, where I have dedicated time to think creatively about different situations and, you know, and projects and to work with different people like you and to have that mental space to be able to even think that something would be a possibility to go and do. I mean, you were massively supportive in what the possibilities were for the New Beginnings project. I mean, I didn't have a clue what I was doing, if I'm honest, when we were writing a proposal and working out the direction it would go in. I mean, maybe that set me up for dealing with uncertainty because I think there was uncertainty as I was starting that, it was something completely different. But I had the time within my job to be able to, you know, embrace uncertainty and to travel with a project that was hugely rewarding, that didn't have a remit from anyone. You know, when I was always having to check, was I doing doing everything okay? And I just followed a complete recipe book of how to set events up and things like that. But did that give me the kind of it's okay that it isn't completely perfect. I think I, I think I probably did learn a lot about just being pragmatic and I think that probably did set me up well for then dealing with a lot of uncertainty around the pandemic and then being able to just go with it. But working with nursing teams and ODP teams, they're, they, they're the culture that they work in, and, and this is true of a lot of different people anyway, is not to deal with uncertainty, it's to only deal with certainties that have all been signed off and rubber-stamped and and things like that and then to follow through and just be told what to do. So um, that's partly why within my role I'm really trying to see how we can give people back and safeguard the time that they have whilst growing, you know, because that feeds, for me, that feeds into recruitment and retention. Like, I don't think the two things are totally interconnected as far as I can see. I stay in a job that's difficult because I get the time and space to do some of those things autonomously and, in fact, our chief exec did ask me exactly this question. And I said it's because I make decisions for myself. You know, that to me is like the most rewarding thing. I have time in my week, albeit that I probably spend more time in my week than <laughs> than I actually get paid for thinking about some of these things. But then that's what's rewarding to me. That's why I do them. You know, I, you know, I don't think you can fit a job where you, you have to think creatively about problem-solving without that leaking into some of your other time. And that's what the other challenge is, is not making that give you sleepless nights, but also using it in a really positive way. So, so that's what I want for all the data stuff. I want to make sure that they also get some of that time and just challenging why we can't allow that
0: just got a couple more things Emma, one's about the general public, you know we've, we've clapped on the doorstep and banged pops and pans and then and the, next, the next week there's some headline on the front of the press which is less positive. If you could get one message across to the general public about the NHS just now, what do you think it might be? Gosh, that's a
1: good question. I think that we're human beings and that we all want the things that you want. I don't think we're not – we're not delivering clinical care in the way that we – we're not delivering clinical care in the way you want us to because we don't want that to. We are a finite resource that has had no break and albeit that it is a vocational role, the human bit of us also needs to have that downtime and that space and, you know, I suppose finding the, the differences between having a job where you just can't work from home. It wasn't ever even a possibility to be able to be furloughed, to have some space, to have some time where you weren't constantly thinking about the next shift or being asked to cover the next thing you know that takes its toll constantly so staying within a role and finding a way of supporting each other was just you know you can have periods of time that are like that you can have horrendous weekends on call but i think that being the norm for you and transforming the way you work from you know being 50 and going back to doing night shifts that's That's not where you were meant to be and that's not where you were, you know, you're not wired for that so much anymore. I think it's the time period over which it's happened that has meant that people are are tired. But I think the fact that people get up and come into work and come and do their very, very best, I think, you know, people haven't left in droves, I think says a lot about their commitment. I think that says everything about their commitment. And I think even though things felt very difficult, when people couldn't come into hospital. I know different hospitals are at different places where they're visiting. I'm really proud of the fact that I think that St George's did try hard to establish normality as quickly as they could. And, uh, I mean, particularly in maternity, we've reinstituted having family in theatres pretty quickly, albeit that it wasn't something that I think colleagues in obstetrics were, or in midwifery were completely certain about, even though they knew that they were so valuable. I was really proud of the fact that we were willing to take that leap into normality as quickly as we were, and we, our theatres and the practices within theatres and getting people back into... A routine again, I think we were pushed really hard, and I think that was a testament to people's
0: commitment to the humanity of healthcare. So it was really about remembering that everybody's turning up and doing their best. Yeah. And, and none of the things that uh, got in the way of sort of business as usual were things that anybody. Yeah. I think people dealt with
1: fear on a daily basis for a long periods of time were redeployed out of their comfort zone. I mean, working within you, it's not like you were redeployed and that was part of an active decision about developing you. So you were nervous and scared, but you were being mentored. People were being redeployed and couldn't be mentored by someone because that someone was the one trained intensive care nurse in a ward of like 30 patients. They had to do the best that they could do. And a lot of people did grow within that, you know, and and develop different skills that enabled us to develop different areas in the operating theatres. But it wasn't an active decision to do that. And I think that made a big difference to how safe people felt. So, you know, a lot of people went home thinking, I wish I could do more. But we're that's that, that to me is just, you know, just be assured we, we always were trying to do our very, very best even if we couldn't physically deliver everything that everyone needed.
0: And and, and the last one, which is possibly, I don't know whether it's an easier or more difficult, is if you were stuck in the lift with the Secretary of State, for, it, Quite this is quite a long way, long stuck in the lift, okay. you, or... Um, or if you could ask for one wish, what what would it be? What would you want to, the Secretary of State to grant you?
1: I suppose I'm not a very confrontational person, so I, I'd have to think. I'd have to think about that. Um, what would I ask them? Oh, for a month off, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just about having that. That that time isn't it you know you, you can't get time back within healthcare that doesn't work but I think there were lots of ways that people wanted to ask for exactly that like what do I ask for as my is my my wish list of things that if I could just press the pause button on everything would that be what I would need or would I want to say you know is it financial reward that people say I want to be shown how Grateful everyone is through financial. I don't think anyone who works within the NHS was looking for financial reward. That they just wanted to sort of go and hibernate for a for a month or travel without restriction, because travel also became that really hard bit that people felt guilty about going away. Because if if the rules changed and then they had to isolate when they came home, mm-hmm. you know you can imagine how that f- looked and felt to a service that was so strapped. I mean all the things I've talked about about being given the 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 extra leeway of being able to release staff to go and do things. It would be about the kind of the stranglehold on staffing numbers and establishment just doesn't have doesn't give you the buffer that you need to be able to let people be released and not to constantly feel that there's a wave of pulling back people into the clinical workplace. There's just not a big enough buffer of people to be able to do that and to continue to do that. So that's, that shortfall is the bit that we need to address. And part of that is, for me, also with that whole development side, is making jobs look different. You know, I benefit hugely from having a kind of a hybrid job, so I have a bit of non-clinical time and I have a bit of clinical time, which gives me the the two different sides I'm a Libra and maybe that's I need those two different things don't (laughs) I to balance and I and I value that and I want that for other people because it's so valuable to me but being able to say you can do a nursing role that doesn't have to be an extremely senior nursing role you can still do that at maybe a band six level and have and have protection for that time that you need to to, to learn and grow without just it being a default position to cancel that time and to pull you back into the clinical workplace where you do grow in different ways, of course you do, but just to benefit other people in the way
0: that it benefits me. So it's about being able to have the freedom to be creative in the yes. way that we think about the workforce of the future really, yeah. isn't it?
1: Yeah, my experience of working with non-clinic, non-medical staff, so the nursing and midwifery staff has been... That their their whole perspective on their job is crammed into their working hours and if we don't free some of those working hours up for the creative time it just isn't gonna it just isn't gonna happen and if I think we need to think really differently and creatively about how we give people time within their job to to be creative I think but maybe that's because that values me but it certainly it, it, it certainly feels like the unique thing that allows me to keep moving forward and to want to develop
0: things more is, is time. Yeah, I mean it was evident with the New Beginnings mm. co-design project, mm. wasn't it, that, that how much people get out of being able to approach things, you know, mm. problems a bit creatively. Mm. So I can, I can see that that's really a, a, an important thing. Okay, well, thank you so much, Emma. It's been really lovely to talk to you. I mean, for the for the benefit of our listeners, we're actually talking to each other in person, which is feels almost miraculous. It feels like Christmas has come again, which is lovely to have a in person conversation. So, thank you very much for spending time with me today. If you want to find more about the Point of Care Foundation and our mission to humanise healthcare, you can visit us at pointofcarefoundation, all word, or at Point of Care Foundation on Twitter. Thank you for listening to this Point of Care Foundation podcast, and I hope you liked it. And I hope you'll look out for our next episode on humanising healthcare. Until then, this is me, Bev Fitzsimons, who can't pronounce her own name, saying goodbye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thanks, Beth. Thank you.